Welcome to Houston Sports Talk with your host, Robert Land. Thanks for checking into the best Houston sports podcast. Robert, along with Sports Radio 610's Sean Bajani. If you're new to the show, welcome to the party. You're in good hands 45 years in journalism between the two of us over 35 covering sports in the H. Texans, Rockets, Astros, all on tap for this one. And Sean, we're still waiting for the smoke to come out of the Texans Vatican <laughs> to find out who the new coach is. I said it's a decision next week with their last scheduled interview, Giants OC Mike Kopka on Sunday. What do you think? Next week would be a little soon, maybe. Um, you know, I think I fired off a tweet a little prematurely a few days ago saying that, you know, maybe this thing is right around the corner. I mean, that could be a little subjective, but I guess, you know, the reason why I wanted to kind of fire that off is I kind of felt like the Texans have reached the end of the road in terms of actual guys they're going to interview. You know, yeah. Cap is going to signal, um, you know, the last of the individuals they're going to interview on the first round. How many waves of, you know, guys make it to the, how many guys make it to the wave of the second round, so to speak. And, you know, I don't know that Averro does. I don't know that Thomas Brown does. Uh, but certainly your favorites like a Gannon, a Steichen, uh, D'Amico Ryans, uh, if Kafka interviews well, maybe he's one of those guys. Sean Payton is going to be an interesting one because, you know, his visit with the Texans was just via a Zoom call. I don't know how long that lasted. Uh, it sounded to me like he'd spent more time talking to Colin Cowherd than he did the Houston Texans. Um, so that's going to be kind of interesting. But I think, yeah, there is a buildup here. And you know what is interesting, too, is depending on the outcomes of these games, you know, what happens with the Eagles? If the Eagles continue to go on, does that kind of prolong the process? If the Giants win, you know, is that going to prolong the process for a guy like Kafka, who, what, just three days ago just was like, eh, I don't know if I'm going to interview, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it next week, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be an interesting process depending on the outcomes of these games, I think. But for the Texans, there's real a real, like, no hesitancy, urgency here with the situation. You don't want to rush anything. You don't need to. Um, in fact, I'd kind of like to maybe get through next week and then maybe early the following week have some finality to this. Now, the strong candidates as far as, you know, that the big appeal – Sean Payton and D'Amico Ryans, but you never get the sense that they're the front runner. I, I kind of feel like it's John Jonathan Gannon. And before I get there, just a quick reminder to subscribe and comment on YouTube. It's the best way to support us. You can listen to our show on your favorite podcast app. But Gannon, Sean, seems pretty much the favorite. So I, I just did a little deep dive on his credentials. For those who haven't already checked him out, and everybody knows he's the DC with the Eagles right now, but his first NFL job was quality control coach under Bobby, Bobby Petrino with the Falcons. He, then he was a scout for the Rams for three years. They were bad at that time. Quality control coach with the Titans under Munchak. After that, he spends four years under the Vikings, Mike Zimmer as a quality control co coach and assistant DB coach. They built up to a 13-3 and three season by his last year in Minnesota, so a good run with the Vikings. He was secondary coach under the Colts, Frank Reich, and D.C., Matt Eberflus, who, of course, head coach of the Bears right now. He did that for three years before he got the Eagles job two years ago. Gannon is calm under fire, Sean. His dad had a saying he always used, calm is contagious. And in Gannon's senior season of high school, if you don't know the story, Sean, he went to the free throw line with seconds left in the state championship game. And despite not being a good free throw shooter, he swished two free throws to win his school's first ever state championship. Pretty good story. 
right? Um, <laughs> That's the kind of guy you want at the helm, right? Yeah, you know, calm, cool, collected, and, um, you know, calm is easy to follow um, as well. Not just that it's contagious, but calm is easy to follow. And I thought that was kind of an element that, um, you know, we've seen from a lot of head coaches over the years. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't mean to inflect this, you know, to, to poke fun at it or anything, but that calm, cool, collected demeanor is something that, you know, Lovey Smith possessed too. But, um, you know, you like to see that from a young uh, coordinator like John Gannon and a lot of these guys, to be honest with you, that's what you want to see guys that are totally um, in control of themselves, their emotions don't let, they don't let the, the moment get too big for them and affect their decision-making um, important things that you're going to need of the CEO of your football team, which is what Gannon is signing up for, uh, whether it be with the Texans. I mean, that's what he wants to sign up for, I should say. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to get him a little bit more excited about Gannon, Sean, because I feel like, okay, that's a little teaser. But, you know, when he was in high school, this tells you about his personality. He always wanted to guard the team's best players. He was their best defensive guy. He would guard six, nine players if he had to. He always Love that challenge. He was in the chess club. I'm guessing David Culley not in the chess club. Just a hint, maybe. I don't know. But Vikings Pro Bowl safety Harrison Smith told teammates and coaches, Gannon is the best coach he'd ever worked with. Avid reader, especially books about leadership, team building, and social elements to bring the best out of people. That doesn't sound like Bill O'Brien to me. He embraces analytics. The Eagles are one of the most analytics-driven franchises in the NFL. Did, did, did Cully or Bill O'Brien strike you as an analytics guy? <laughs> Put those two guys in the same sentence together. I mean, that's an era of Houston Texan football that I think, you know, we can officially move beyond because a lot of the common denominators are no longer in that building. Uh, now, you know, there is there are two and it just remains to be seen uh, how much of a problem, maybe rather than uh, the solution they will be in terms of Cal McNair and Nick Casario. But and I think it largely comes down to the candidate. You know, I've had conversations over the course of the last two days with guys like Gannon, Steichen, uh, D'Amico Ryans, uh, Mike Kafka, obviously Sean Payton, all various different, you know, beginnings and stages of their career. And the one guy that you can kind of feel comfortable about is a Sean Payton. But when it comes down to, to control and things like that, you don't really understand a lot about these per a lot about these personalities outside of one guy who's kind of been there, done that, and demands has demanded control in previous years, which is a guy like Sean Payton. But for a guy like Gannon, I'm excited about that. You know, he doesn't when you when you look at the guy and you hear him speak, and you you know you don't you don't get excited about him, but he has a great resume. A lot of these guys have great and impressive resumes, and you could probably do some some deeper dives on on the aforementioned, and you'll find very similar stories. I like to find out as much as I possibly can about these guys, as you should. Organizations have and will and continue to do so. Um, but Gannon, it's going to be interesting this weekend. He's going up against Mike Kafka and Brian Dable's offense with the New York Giants. I'm going to be a John Gannon fan this weekend. Um, because I do think, like you'd said, he is the reported favorite. I think he is the favorite. A couple of meetings and interviews with the Texans last year, another one this year. Um, the job, obviously, that he's done defensively for an Eagles squad who Howie Roseman give him all the credit. And I trust that guy's judgment because he's gone from offense to defense, quarterback, head coach. He's done a complete remodel and overhaul of that organization under his watch. It's why 
he's he should get executive of the year this season uh, for the Eagles and Howie Roseman. So I'm an Eagle fan this year because I want that reported favorite to do well. And if we have to wait a little bit longer, you know, to get some finality to the head coaching search for the Texans, and so be it. If that's the guy, I'm comfortable with it. I also, too, find it most appealing and intriguing um, that Gannon is a guy that I feel like we've heard more about who would his staff entail. You know, we've heard Frank Reich's name attached to him as maybe an offensive coordinator that he would bring along. I like the tree that he comes from. So all of those things intrigue me. I think those are all reasons why Gannon is the uh, early favorite not named Sean Payton right now. Last couple of quick asides with him. I just thought this was interesting because, you know, I talked about he played basketball and football with San Ignatius High School in Cleveland, Jesuit school. I went to a Jesuit school. Lance McCullers went to a Jesuit school out in Tampa. So this is interesting. One of his teammates was former Texan Brian Hoyer, and I believe he just missed another former Texan and San Ignatius grad, Dave Ragone, 20 years before Gannon played at San Ignatius, former Houston Oiler quarterback and Dynamo GM Oliver Luck went to school there. So, Sean, that is three Houston NFL quarterbacks that came out of San Ignatius. Unfortunately, none of them had much success here in Houston on the field. Oliver Luck, you know, outside of what he did on the field, obviously, we know about that. But uh, it's, it's just real interesting. And, of course, I mentioned Brian Hoyer. Don't forget, Brian Hoyer also played for the New England Patriots when Casario was there. So, you know, there's a connection that everybody's talked about with Gannon and Jonathan and, and uh, Nick Casario. And that's that's part of probably the connection. You know, they got that Cleveland thing going on and um, just real interesting, I thought. Yeah, it is. It is cool. It is interesting. You know, three out of the four guys you're saying that came from that program um, all actually played quarterback in the NFL. I don't think Gannon did. Right. And, uh, you know, there's that's kind of how you get into coaching. Sometimes you love a sport. You love the process so much and you just can't make it happen for yourself on the field. But you know what? If coaching's going to get me to where I want to be, ultimately, then that's that's what I'm going to do. And so I, yeah. I admire that quality, um, maybe a little bit more than most uh, for individuals, because that kind of tells my story and to a much lesser degree. I mean, here I am. I'm just you know, a part-time radio host and I'm doing podcasts, but you know, like I thought I was going to play baseball my entire life and it didn't work out, but I, I wanted to be involved and be around sports. Uh, I just had to, that, that's what I was passionate about. That's what I cared about as meaningless as it all is in the game of life. That's what I wanted to do. And if sports radio was going to be it for me, awesome. Going on 17 years. If playing wasn't going to be it for me, I had to coach. And so I've been a a uh, baseball guy trapped in a football coach's body for the last decade, but I've enjoyed it. I loved it. And, you know, I've had the opportunity to do those things. It's a drive, though, in those guys that are able to take that from such a young age and realize that they're not maybe going to be able to realize their dream as a player, but apply the passion uh, to a different profession in coaching and to have so much success as guys like Gannon have. I mean, there's a lot of those stories, man, um, but to actually do it. And to be a part of one of the most successful organizations, um, you know, again, this season and to do the job that he's done defensively, specifically with that unit and the talent that he's had at his disposal. I mean, it's a huge accomplishment. Is he ready to be a head coach, though? That is the ultimate question. Is he ready to be 
a head coach. Yes, I think he is because he's this is somebody that everybody you talk to, this guy's been a leader since high school. He's somebody, Sean, let me just make this point. He's somebody that looks everybody in the eye. He knows your name. He figures out a way to remember your name. Like I said, he's reading books about leadership. This has been his deal. And history mended in college. He had an injury when he was playing college football. And yeah, he wanted, like everybody that age, he wanted to go to the NFL. He would have loved to have been in the NBA too. And they told him, yeah, you're better. You're, maybe your better shot is, is the NFL. But still, you know, this is somebody that everywhere I read about him, you just see leader, lead, like his high school coaches. Oh, yeah, they, they, they knew. They knew this guy was the deal. And, and he's done everything that he could. He's checked every box, moving his way up the ladder. And I think that's going to matter a little bit. You know, Sean Payton, obviously, he's got the credentials of having done it. However, you know, you have to factor all, all of it in. Do you want to spend a ton of money? Do you want somebody that you don't know what he's going to do without Drew Brees? We know what he can do with Drew Brees. What's he going to do with another quarterback that might not be a Hall of Famer? And like, hey, you know, it's hard to find those Hall of Fame guys. They just don't grow on trees. So, you know, and, and Drew Brees was a guy that was already an NFL quarterback by the time he got there. He didn't have Drew Brees from day one. So, you know, and D'Amico Ryans, yeah, the leadership is absolutely there. Um, and and I would love to bring him here. And it'd be a great story for him to come back to Houston. But don't people don't don't be so quick to just dismiss Gannon as, oh, uh, well, he would have he was maybe my third choice or whatever, because, you know, I think. You, you hear about him and his personality and who he is, you know, genuinely good guy, but real leader. And he thinks of things analytically. He thinks of things like a chess master. And he also, you know, can can do a little things on the football field, as we saw the Eagles led, led the NFL in sacks this year. You know, taking all of those guys and encompassing it all into just having a decision to make. You know, one of the things that uh, I've been discussing the last couple of days is I kind of want a guy that is going to come in, has the football acumen, obviously, is credentialed, is deserving of the opportunity, is hungry for the opportunity, all those things. Uh, those are all obvious, you know, just kind of like the leader of men kind of thing. You know, if you're a football coach, you have a little bit of those qualities already, certainly, if you've done it at various levels uh, in college and a number of years at the NFL, as he has. I want somebody that's going to come in and challenge, you know, the general manager. You know, that's not just going to be comfortable with, hey, here you go. This is what's uh, for dinner. Now you kind of prepare. These are the ingredients. I want somebody that's going to challenge me like, no, you know what? I, I know how I like my steak to taste. I know how I like my chicken. I don't really like to add this or add that. You know what I mean? I want somebody that's going to challenge Nick Casario. And I, I think that's up for debate, you know, because what we know between those two guys is that they do have a previous relationship. Um, and that they do like each other. But is Gannon going to be a guy that's going to challenge Casario? But but the difference, I say what I see what you're saying, Sean, but the difference here is that Casario isn't bringing in a Patriots guy. He's bringing in a guy that's, you know, worked for, Fra he's worked for Frank Reich. He's worked for Mike Zimmer. He's worked for Steve Spagnola. You know, he's worked for all different, all these different coaches, Bobby Petrino. So he's bringing ideas from all of these different places that he's sort of glommed all together, but he's not a Patriots guy. This is not Patriots South again. No, it's not. Um, and, and, you know, that's a great point. And it's refreshing. Um, and the coaching tree that you just mentioned is, is intriguing. 
And it's that that is the exciting part, you know, uh, when you talk about, you know, some of those uh, football minds. But I I guess kind of where I was going is in regards to Nick Casario, there's obviously a trust factor. You know, from from our perspective, fan perspective, it's really hard to trust Nick Casario right now just because of everything that's gone on over the course of the last couple of years. And it's hard to trust the Texans. Okay. Yeah. But it, I, I'm just saying, I, I think there is hope with Jonathan Gannon and I like hope. The, and all these yeah. guys on the board, all the guys that we're talking about, there's hope with all of them. There's hope. But I think, you know, the, the case for a lot of people that, you know, are making one for Sean Payton, which seems like, you know, a slam dunk, if you can make it happen. And I'm kind of in that ballpark too. If you have a shot, at a guy like Sean Payton with his resume, everything that he's done, you shoot your shot. You take your chance. At what cost? I think there is a fair question there. How much is too much? And we can get to that. But the one guy you really don't have to trust Nick Casario with or Cal McNair on that's out there as a candidate that you've spoken with already, it is Sean Payton because his resume, it, it speaks to itself. He is a proven commodity. He has a number of guys that you can point to that, you know what? They might not have had that level of success without Sean Payton and his mind and his system and his scheme. Sure, Drew Brees is, you know, the big dog, and he's got a Super Bowl championship because of that. And, yeah, you're right. Brees was a quarterback for five years before he met Sean Payton and came into his system. But Drew Brees also went from a pretty darn good quarterback to a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback under Sean Payton's tutelage. And I'm always – we're so automatic to be like, Hey, yeah, but this guy's a Hall of Famer. Or, yeah, you know, Alvin Kamara. Would Alvin Kamara be Alvin Kamara if not for him been in Sean Payton's system? You know, would Jameis Winston have been able to do what he did, take better, best care of the ball that he had of his career without Sean Payton and being his system? I think there's a lot of examples like that, which is what makes him intriguing. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it has to be the right guy. And it can't cost you. You know, it can't hinder you to continue to move this thing forward. Who's better equipped to do that than the Houston Texans? Two ones this year, two ones next year, uh, you know, three second round picks over the course of the next couple of years. What it, what's, what's it going to take to get Sean Payton? Those are all things you have to weigh. I kind of made the argument today. You do have guys like him. You do have a, a Shane Steichen. You do have D'Amico Ryans. And maybe Mike Kafka blows you away on Sunday. I don't know. But there are very capable, you know, coaches, good young coaches available that very well could take you to the next level as well as Sean Payton. It may not cost you draft capital. It may not cost you 20 to $25 million a year for a head coach. Yeah, it sounds like they're all knocking at your door right now, Sean. I hear a lot of them in the background or something. It's the evening time. <laughs> These fools... The work is never done. It's like road construction in Houston. They're banging around on something at the radio station every single day they get a chance to over here. Yeah, we should say you're over at 610 after doing your afternoon shift today. And uh, let's let's move over to the Rockets because I want to get to these John Wall damning quotes this week. And he told, as everybody has probably heard, KPJ and Jalen, he said, quote, to those two guys, this crap y'all getting away with here, if you go to any other teams – you would be out of the league. You wouldn't play. I'm trying to explain it to them because they think it's sweet. Now, that quote is the one that scares me the most. He also said he was fine coming off the bench for the Rockets, but they told me, quote, uh, that you'd have to be good with 10 to 15 minutes some nights and not playing at all other nights. 
He went on to say that the Rockets didn't even want him working out with Jalen and KPJ. None of what he said was a surprise, but it's becoming crystal clear with his comments and what I'm seeing that the Rockets' lack of culture could set you back two years in the development of Jalen. And really, that's the biggest deal of what I heard when I listened to him is somebody like Jalen, that's my concern with where the Rockets are right now, that he gets set back because there wasn't John Wall hanging around. And it's a he said, she said between John Wall and the Rockets. But what what I'm real sure of as I watch Jalen Green, <laughs> it's not good with his development right now at all. No, man. Um, there's a lot of meat on the bone here. I'm I'm very concerned, and it goes deeper than just Jalen Green. I mean, because this roster is largely made up of 19, 20, 21-year-olds, you know, and Steven Silas made mention of that a number of times all season long, but particularly over the last 24 hours since he's had to address these comments by John Wall himself. Um, they're, they're easily influenced, and they're just a few short years removed from a very lax and – but yet still somewhat structured program from whatever high school that they come from. But without getting too far deep in the weeds, you're talking in large part about a team that had little to no college experience that were the guys coming from high school that are directly in the league. They're immediate millionaires. And you go to a team that is in tank mode year after year after year, year three, year three, and how much longer is it going to take? The culture, is Steven Silas a basketball coach? Yeah, I think he could be a good one. Working under the parameters uh, that he's working? I don't think so. Hold, hold, on, <laughs> hold on. You know, say what you want, because there is a time and a place for guys, and this is a horrible situation for Steven Silas, working under the parameters that I think he's working under. With the architect of this rebuild, this tank job, you know, who has assembled this talent in Rafael Stone, their general manager, you know, you have to be allowing your coaches to coach. And I know there's dynamics that aren't working within that staff, okay? Steven Silas is not a good coach right now. I mean, you're, you're seeing it. But to what degree is he having to kind of meander his way through with this staff, with his boss, Rafael Stone, and with this talent, you know, that, that is so impressionable. And if there is a divide within that locker room, and I think by now it's easy to say that there has to be a divide and there it's fractured and these guys are so young and impressionable, like they don't know what to think. Like John Wall, I take a lot of that to heart with what he'd said and very little with a grain of salt because he is looking at it from his perspective. But what's he doing this year? He's coming off the bench. And he doesn't look anywhere remotely close to the John Wall that he was. So I could take a little bit of that and say, well, you know what? Like, yeah, I get their idea, their role for you. But ultimately, because they didn't want you to affect winning. What little bit you possibly could, they were tanking. They needed the picks. That's their plan. This is where I just differ with. There's a lot of people on Twitter that are just like, oh, my God, he could have won a bunch of games. No, John Wall was not an all-star anymore. He wasn't going to affect winning. It was just he could, those guys could learn something. And what you would hope from a veteran is you help these guys win a little quicker down the road because they were so young last year and so not talented last year. 
And you didn't have any other veterans to really look. I mean, Eric Gordon was not the guy. And they had some other vets that they weren't going to listen to. But you listened to a a John Wall because he he was an all-star. Those guys have to listen to that type of guy. And even if he doesn't have the talent anymore, I mean, it's the best of both worlds. He doesn't have the talent. He's not going to help you win. But at the same time, he can tell these guys, I was an all-star. This is how you do it. And if you don't do it like this, you're going to be out of the league. They cut. They cut that opportunity out from underneath Wall's feet to help anybody. And you alienate him from the guys that he's supposed to be making better, from the guys that he's supposed to be teaching how to work in this league, what it's going to take. If that was all true, that's why they had him in. And then you set the precedent, like you set the example of like, you make him unhappy. You say, hey, here's how we're going to use you. We want you to do this, but here's how we're going to use you. And for a guy like John Wall, think about this. Like, he mentioned it in his podcast. He went through the death in the family, COVID, and his Achilles. Bam, bam, and bam. I think he just wanted to play, but he didn't want to be disrespected to, like, you're, you're, not, you're only going to play 10 or 15 minutes a night. Or the key, the key to that is they told him, or there are some nights where you're not going to play at all. He, like you said, he had waited that long. You, that's the last thing you want to hear after that. that's happened in your life. They pissed him off. I mean, they legitimately put a ceiling on him. A team still that's paying him $40 million per year capped him and said, like, as an athlete, I went through all of this, but particularly an Achilles injury, which is usually a death sentence for guys. And you know what? Like, who wants more than to try to come back and prove everybody wrong than me on this team with this young roster? Like, this should be fun. But then you're going to tell me, like, there's nights you're not going to play me? There's nights you're going to literally strike, you know, take take the opportunity away from me to better myself, to better the team. You want me to show up at 7 o'clock in the morning and work out by myself? Like, how am I helping anybody? And so I think, yeah, to a certain degree, you don't make comments like John Wall did on a podcast at this point in time unless you do have an axe to grind, unless there is something that just – eats at you and eats at you, and especially when you're looking at your current situation, yeah, he had an ax to grind, but it doesn't mean he's wrong. He's right, and I think it's a huge indictment on Rafael Stone, the architect of this giant mess. And you and I have talked about this numerous times now over the last few weeks. You keep mentioning it. What's Tillman Fertitta doing? How can he watch this and see exactly what's going on, the complete opposite end of the spectrum over at U of H with uh, – what 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 they're doing with their basketball program, Kelvin Sampson, you can't. At some point, he's got to get off his hands and stop acting like Cal McNair Jr. at this stage of the Rockets rebuild as Cal, as Cal was when he first took over the Texans, and you have to act because he's better in front of the camera. He is more vocal. He is more confident. And you know what? He might not know the damn game to save his life, but he's supposed to know the guys that he puts in the best position to win, to develop, to do their jobs. And I'm telling you right now, I don't think Rafael Stone's it. Because you get the number two pick, you get the number three pick, with the talent you've already assembled in KPJ and Alperin Shagoon, you know, it was a great job getting him at a mid-round pick like that. You have the talent. How much more do you need to tank? How much more do you need to hinder their growth? Rafael Stone, in my mind, has got to go. Steven Silas, that entire staff, you got to go. This organization needs a massive shakeup, if for nothing else, to prove to every single one of those young players that, hey, this ain't how it goes in the NBA. 
we're here to win. The Rockets have a legacy. Look at those banners up in the Raptors. Look at those great ball players up there. That's what you have to get them to buy into. You know, seeing Calvin Murphy shoot free throws and talk about how crappy you play every single night on a pre and a post game show ain't going to be it. It's about upholding a legacy that has been long overdue to get back to relevancy. This should be the crew that does it. And they've got to find the right structure, the right foundation to put around them. Yeah, there's enough to blame, blame to go around with everybody. Silas, Stone, Tillman, Fertitta, all of that. But there's one player that can't get away with what he's getting away with right now. And it, it gets a little frustrating for me because I see Rockets fans getting excited, getting excited when Jalen scores 41 against the Hornets. And that pissed me off a little bit because you watch Jalen and he's putting literally zero effort into anything unless the ball is in his hands. His turnovers have gotten lazy. His transition and help defense is hardened like atrocious, yet he's about the most inefficient, high-volume player in the NBA. And finally, getting hot one night against one of the two other teams as atrocious as the Rockets on defense, and after being a terrible shooting chucker for a month and a half, no exaggeration, is not something to get excited about. And Sean, Jalen looks like he thinks this is the AAU and not the NBA. And that scares me right now. When you're a part of an organization and a team that is, as Steven Silas said yesterday, they're driving the bus. What I'm saying is this is more than the organization. The organization might be responsible for 50% of what of, of of what's going on with him. But the other 50%, look, Sean, I've had terrible bosses over the years. But I have a work ethic and I have a I have my own standard. And yeah, there there's some things that I might do differently if if I have, you know, somebody over my head that I don't like or things aren't going well in the company, but I'm doing my best because in the end, it's about a matter of pride number 1 and number 2, if I do my job well, then maybe I impress somebody else. And I, down the road, that might happen. But you do not, you know, you, you do not get it. You do not have a, the habits that he has and turn into Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant. Those guys hated winning, hated losing, and they were still putting forth the effort. And there are just many times, many times when I'm watching him going, man, do you even care how this looks? No. You? When's the last time you saw Steven Silas or John Lucas pull his ass off, pull his ass off the court? You know, and hold him accountable. Like, how many times has that happened? Not just with him, but with anybody. Yeah, and, and and absolutely, that's part of the problem. But my thinking is, if Michael Jordan or Kobe Bryant were getting coached by somebody that wasn't doing that, Michael Jordan didn't care. He held everybody accountable around him. He did not like any of that stuff. And when you see Shane Goon out there. It is a it's a hundred and eighty degree different story. He's yelling at guys. He's upset because guys aren't doing their job. I saw it against Charlotte last night where he gets on Jabari Smith because he's not blocking out the one guy underneath the basket, and he lets that guy block Shane Goon, who's out, you know, who had already you know moved around him because Shane Goon was uh, trying, you know, he was trying to guard the guy or something like that. But that's the kind of stuff where you watch the guys that end up being successful. And yeah, you can get down and all this, but people are watching you. They're watching you. And also, like, there should be that inner pride of, like, I'm not going to 
just give in to this. And I have a sense of doing my job well. And, and that should be part of it. And I get he's 20 years old. But even at 20, I had that sort of pride about, you know, what I was doing. It should take that and that alone. If there's one guy on the floor in any role that is getting on to another teammate and questioning effort, questioning, you know, ability to make or not make a certain play, that's all it should take. You don't need a coach. You, you don't you don't need those guys. They should be reinforcing it. They should be like, yeah, you should be getting it on the court. And when you go to the bench, you should be getting it from the coaches. And when you get back on the floor, you should still be hearing it from your teammates. That's all it should take. And basketball, it's a beautiful thing, man, because you should instantaneously be able to see a change in effort and energy. In basketball, the number one criticism you'll hear from every head coach throughout the course of a season You hear the word energy probably more times than not. Energy is equatable to effort, and effort is something that comes from within you. And if your own teammates are questioning it and getting on to you about it, a light switch should go off. It's a skill in sports. Effort is a skill. It really is. Like the guy that just is not going to stop and not going to quit, like we saw with J.J. Watt for years, that is a skill. I don't know what you mean by skill. I mean, what I mean by skill is it's something that you equate with the guys that are the best at what they do. They just, they don't quit. The, the winners don't quit. Winners do not quit when they're, they're not stopping and taking coffee breaks in the middle of the game. No, but I think, I don't, I don't know if I'm, I would use the word skill. I just, it, to me, it's innate. You know, it's, it, it either comes naturally or it doesn't. Effort. You have that killer in you to where when your game is off one night, I'm going to make up for it in other areas. If my shot ain't falling, then you know what? I'm going to hustle my butt off on defense. I'm diving for loose balls. I'm affecting the game positively in some way, shape, or form. I'm moving the ball. I'm getting it out of my hands. I'm moving away from the ball. That's what I'm not seeing with this system under Steven Silas. That's why I say he's not a good coach this year. And I don't think he's being allowed to reach his guys the way that he would be if under, if working under different parameters. And we could argue about that too, because there's a lot that we don't know, but I think you just read between the lines and seeing where Steven Silas came from and just, I mean, his tree that he literally came from the great coach that his dad was as excitable as energetic. His dad was not that good of a coach though. Let's be clear about that. His dad was not a good head coach. Uh, and, and I look at, Steven Silas's career and he hasn't been a head coach and being a head coach means you got to be the bad guy sometimes. And he doesn't like being the bad he guy. He didn't have that in him. He didn't have that in him, but to have the sustainability to be a head coach in the national basketball association, you know, as his dad did, who's been there done and worked with some great ones. I mean, you don't stick around that long unless you do have that authoritative, um, you know, way about you that way to reach guys to make them look at the situation a little bit differently and not in a selfish light where, you know, what I started to get to earlier, if Jalen Green is looking at the situation, as John Wall said, and thinking, man, this is sweet, you know, like, hey, I get the ball out and my team's tanking. I'm not going to be held accountable. I ain't got to answer tough questions. I'm assuming that's what he meant. That's not the way the league is. If you go anywhere else, you know, I, I get that to a certain degree. Like, you're going to ball out and look the very best you possibly can. 
but where's the killer in you that you had when you were in high school to help you get to this point? Where's the adversities that you had to kind of get through to get to this point? Did you forget about that? You know, he missed out on having those opportunities in college and being part of a disciplined organization, a structure, an accountability structure. Yeah, the guys on the Rockets that look like they were part of a structure are not having this problem as much. Jabari, it's starting to seep into him a little bit, but Jay Sean Tate played professional basketball over in Australia. Shangun played in Euroball and 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 he played in Turkey and you know, really good player over there. They they played with grown men and you see it on the court that those guys aren't letting go of the rope as much when we're hitting the rough ECs right now. And Shane Goon comes out after the Charlotte game and says, hey, we got to do better, including me, and took responsibility and flat out said, this is not acceptable and we can't let this be acceptable. Leadership. That guy's my favorite player on the Rockets right now. Oh, yeah. He has been, honestly, for a long time. You know, any question like, oh, you know, about Shane Goon developing and this, that, and the other thing, this dude's the best baller they got. He's the total package right now because he plays the game the way that it's supposed to be played with passion, with heart, with accountability. Yep. And I, I love that. And that's what you want to see out of a superstar. Don't give me this crap. Just be, I know, I know Jabari Smith can score. I know Jalen Green can score. I know KPJ can score. I mean, it's a scores league. Everybody can score the damn basketball, but who's going to fight? Who's going to fight for a win? You know what I mean? Like that element of game hasn't changed like while the game has changed from the 70s 80s 90s to where we are right now i get it physicality and stuff like that but the things that separate you from winning and losing what it takes that hasn't changed it really hasn't that is still a clear separator a defining line between winners and losers and every everybody that is saying that you know the rockets right now are fostering losers That's exactly accurate because Jalen Green, you can look good, score on a basketball, put up a 40 spot all you want to. Last time I checked, you still got an L next to your team and you wear it across your chest. You can score 40 and give up 50 too. That's the other thing that you got to worry about. 100%. It's got to end, Robert. And I'm telling you, I'm waiting for Tillman Fertitta. I know we'd said it a couple of years ago. This guy needs to get out in front of a camera. You know what? I'm ready for his butt to get back in front of a camera and start speaking some truth and some life into this organization and hold people accountable. Because, look, they've got an excellent template just down the road. The Astros, they tore that sucker down from the top down, not from the bottom up, from the top down. And if anybody should be talking to anybody, it's the Rockets to the Astros. It's the Texans to the Astros. There are things you can learn in terms of structuring a rebuild, the ideas, the philosophy, because ultimately it is the people behind the scenes that help everything kind of go. And it's the players and the coaches that are going to get a lot of the credit and they're going to get a lot of the criticism too. There's so many other things that go into the construction and the everyday process that keeps those wheels in motion. They need to be talking to the Astros because what the Rockets are doing, what the Texans have done the last four years, it's absolute horse crap, and the city deserves better. Speaking of the Astros, let's get to the champs because uh, the Astros pitchers and catchers report in about three weeks. And, Sean, we talked a little bit about the rule changes this year, but this is really interesting. I was listening to an interview with Astros pitching coach Josh Miller. He said a few notable things that I didn't think of with the pitch clock. He said a couple of pitchers on the staff, the Astros staff, have a tendency to shake off signs, specifically Fromber and McCullers. They do it sometimes more out of habit than anything, but also 
when things are going bad for Fromberg, he'll walk around the mound a bit to gather his composure. And you can guess that's a mechanism that Fromberg used for his mental game when he was trying to get out of those mental issues. And Josh Miller said they also need to get clarity for when the pitch clock ends because Luis Garcia has that long windup. In other words, will Garcia be fine as long as he starts his windup by the 22nd mark, John? I mean, any change to like mechanisms like that, I mean, I do think it can be a big deal, but it speaks to really the mental fortitude, you know, by a specific player. You know, is he a guy who, you know, can can find another mechanism or shorten it up a little bit, which, you know, I think we've seen here over the course of the last season or two with him. Like he hadn't always gone through, you know, that lengthy ordeal. Like it's been where he's tried to throw hitters off. He's kind of gotten to it quicker. Is that something he's comfortable with? I I hope so. It's going to be an adjustment, I think, for not just him, but for everybody early in the season. And, you know, the the, the one guy I was worried about was was Garcia, but yeah, he made a good point about Fromber and taking that time that he needed mentally to kind of clear his head a little bit sometimes when he gets in trouble. I'm sure he doubled down on it, right? I mean, I think you just alluded to it, you know, where Fromber had issues – staying composed he would let his emotions get the best of him and it it, it would affect his at bats you know and how he'd work to batters and stuff like that that's something that he picked up on I don't know where it came from I don't know if Miller suggested that I don't know if you know somebody else told Fromber you know like hey look you know you got a little time man just compose yourself you know uh throw that last pitch away you know just refresh have amnesia I mean you talk about quarterbacks relief pitchers, pitchers, anybody, just the last bad play, the last bad pitch, last interception, just flush it. And that certainly helped. I think it's been a huge game changer for him. Um, It's not to say that that's got to stop. You just got to find a more timely way to do that, you know, and these guys have all kind of known and seen that this is coming. And so they probably prepared themselves mentally for it. It's another thing to go out there and actually do it when your body and your mind are used to certain things and you have that mode about you. I always think about this, you know, that uh, movie with um, uh, Kevin Costner where he's the pitcher. It's like, uh, what's it called? Uh, oh, for the love of, for love of the game. For love of the game. One of my favorite baseball movies of all time. What does he do every time he gets up there and he's ready to pitch? He's looking in for a sign. He says, clear the mechanism, you know, and it was like everything that blocked out, like every player, pitcher, batter, you know, to some degree has that about them. You have to. And it's something that you learn, you know, hopefully from a very early age, but it's also something that you have to constantly work on as you get older. And, you know, it's something that it it doesn't just happen. You have to make it happen. And guys, they've been doing it for long enough. You play baseball a long time every day. You can figure out a new way to do it. Everybody will be fine at the end of the day, but they all have their own timeline and comfortability to get to that. Yeah, I'm pointing out, and Josh Miller's pointing out, it could be a little bit of a process the first couple of months in the season. And he also made it sound that they want to continue with the six-man rotation as much as possible, but the first couple of months might not be conducive with a lot of days off during that stretch. So maybe they're doing the five-man until May or June just to keep keep an eye on that if, if you're watching the Astros. But also, I was thinking about this as when I was looking at the new rules that might benefit the Astros that limit in throws to pickoff attempts, you know, you, you've got only two pickoff attempts now. Machete's arm, I'd imagine, Sean, will help because not only will there likely be more steal attempts, but ball clubs might have to be a little bit more creative to hold runners. So we might see more catchers attempting 
pickoff throws to keep runners on their toes. And I think maybe that part of, you know, shortening the game, there, there could be a, a, another effect where the, the catchers making the pickoff attempts might slow it down for a second too. Yeah, maybe. And I think it kind of depends. I mean, that's not something you see all too often. You know, I mean, some of your better catchers, obviously Maldi being one of them, you know, will we'll, we'll definitely do that from time to time. That's something that I'm interested in. Like, where's all these analytic dorks at, you know, been this offseason? Because I've been waiting to see the stat, the figure on increasing the base size. Obviously, baseball is doing this for more offense and more steal attempts, more action, stuff like that. Safe, safety, too, I think, because they're, they want to give – so, so a little bit more room, so guys aren't running to do each other at first on a, on a on a you know a close play between a pitcher, you know, pitcher covering or something like that. Safety, you know, it's a good thing, you know, for Major League Baseball to say, yeah, safety, okay, sure, you want more offense, you want more action. I, I get that. I mean, it's conducive, right? Bigger bases, fewer pickoff attempts, guys are going to be prone to steal more. I want to see the attempted steals over the course of the last three seasons and how close those plays were relative to how many safe calls there would have been if, in fact, the bases would have been bigger then. Like, what should we be expecting? Because guys don't run. I want to see steals. I want to go back to 90s, 80s baseball, like where guys are running all over the place. You know, I'm not anticipating and wanting to see or expecting Ricky Henderson, you know, and a reincarnation of him, somebody going out there stealing 80, 90, 100 bases every year. But I do want it to be a part of the game again. And so I'd want to see those numbers, like what uptick should we expect? It's certainly, if you can come up with all these crazy cockamamie stats, you know, exit velocity is an easy one, but all this other launch angle crap and everything that we hang our hats on now to talk about, like what we used to just identify as, you know what? Guy can swing the bat a little bit. He can hit the ball pretty good. You know, we have a number for it. Like, give me a number. Give me something tangible to where I can expect, like, to see X amount of steals in 2023. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be the base size as much. I think what's going to increase the amount of steals is the fact that you only got two times to throw over there. And I'm surprised, Sean, you're not going to go out on a limb and predict a 50-50 year for Kyle Tucker. (laughs) Man, I don't know. Like, another 30-30 would be sweet. I'd be good with 30-30. you talk about that, like it's it's still it's in the realm of possibility. I mean, I was just talking about him earlier today. Like he's li- literally been one of the most, maybe the most consistent guy with the Astros over the course of the last couple of seasons in terms of reliability, health, performance at the plate, obviously what he means defensively and right field. The guy's been terrific, obviously on the bases. We're just talking about it. Um, we were talking about it because like, the fact that this guy is going to arbitration over, you know, a measly two and a half million dollars, like this guy legit should be one of your highest paid players if arbitration wasn't a thing. Like you'd have to be paying out the butt for this guy right now. And at some point, Astros are going to do it or somebody else is going to do it. But I, I'm going to go with 30, 30 for uh, a 30, 30 guy. If you give me 50, 50. Yeah, that's cool. When's the last time you had one of those? Never. Well, make make the guy think, man, why am I fighting over an extra $2 million when I can just sign that extension? That's what Jim Cranes was. He's like, hey, you're going you're gonna to have to fight over $2 million or we could give you this massive extension right now. Not everybody's cut from the same cloth as in the Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman or Jordan Alvarez. You know, if I'm Kyle Tucker, I'm obviously looking outside and I'm seeing these other gigantic deals, these 7 to 
12 year deals that people are getting for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Like it's got to be a thought. And it ultimately comes down to his rep- representation um, and, and who's in his head. And I don't know who that is, if it's a, if he's a Boris guy or whatever, but um, hey, Kyle Tucker's not a guy like Ted, the kid. Talks about it five, six years ago, like, hey, this cat's in the system, man. Get ready for it. He's the reincarnation of Ted Williams. He looks the part. His demeanor's just like it. And maybe now we're starting to see the actual production, and maybe he's going to be paid like Ted Williams would have been paid if, in fact, he played in today's game. Oh, it'd be nice if he was Ted Williams. That's a whole, that's a whole, whole other thing. But at least they're taking away the shift, so maybe his average will go up a little this year. That that that's something that I'm real interested to see because he makes a lot of those hard outs. But that's what I'm saying. Like they got numbers in production, like tangible values for that. You know what to expect. And I've seen those numbers on Tucker. I've seen those numbers on uh, who is it, Michael Brantley, on a number of guys. And it's like, wow. Okay, well, give me something on the base paths. You know because. How many close plays? How many times have we had to go to review for the play at second base? I mean, it's been a lot, man, over the years. And probably more. we should have gone to it more if, in fact, you could challenge however many times possible. Um, I'm expecting to see a lot more action on the base paths this year. The other thing that kind of went under the radar in the last few days, they are going to completely automate the strike zone in AAA. So we are one step closer from an automated strike zone in the major leagues that should have happened about five years ago. Cause tennis has been doing this, I think since uh, the 18th century. Now they're, they're way ahead of the, the major league baseball players. Yeah. And I guess maybe I'm starting to kind of come around to that. You know, I, I think about it this way. Like baseball's great. I love the aesthetics of it. I love the way it looks. I love the way it feels. I love, being used to still being able to be used to to the game the way that I was when I grew up okay like we don't like change but I think about it this way basketball football you know like these other two major sports and I don't know about hockey I don't watch it you know I'm not going to pretend like I do but these other two sports like it is so important to get every single call correct why is it any less in baseball I, I, I kind of go back to that. And I know a lot of people think it's cute and fun and character for to be 10 different strike zones on 10 different nights. I, I just look at it as like, man, can we just get one strike zone? And you know what the strike zone is. If you're the player. You just have a different person interpreting the same strike zone every single night. And, and that's the thing. And I can't believe I'm saying this because I used to be the guy that argued, well, like, look, human error is a part of the game, you know, and, just because it has been doesn't mean it needs to continue to be that way. Like you still ultimately strive for calling the very best possible game you can. If you can have technology help you do that and not remove the body, the actual human figure from behind home plate and still have technology make the right call and just have him there as a figure, fine, do it. I think I would be good with it. The one thing that chaps my butt like the most, if in fact, it makes its way to Major League Baseball, and you do do that. You have replay now for fair, foul, strikes, balls, whatever, the whole thing. The game is maybe as clean as it possibly can be to the eye as it ever has been in the history of it. And it's faster. It's faster. Yeah, good good point. Good point. You know, to what to what extent, like, I, I don't know. It, it would eliminate a lot of the in-between. It would eliminate guys arguing. And if I want arguments, I'll go on Twitter. I don't need to see that in a baseball. I'm tired of people yelling at each other the last, I don't know, 
20 years of my life, I just got tired of it. I'm like, hey, let's just keep, let's just play a baseball game, guys. There's not any specific moments that I can point to in the NFL, but I do feel like this has been an issue before, and you see it more in college, but the clock, particularly the play clock, play clock where quarterbacks will get the snap after it's expired. Nobody says anything about it. You just kind of go on about your merry way and the play exists and you know whatever it is. Like, I'm going to be interested to see how this pitch clock, you know, kind of goes in Major League Baseball, how loose they're going to be on that. If, in fact, they tend to be as loose as they have been before in, in, the, in the NFL and particularly in college. I see it more in the college game, you know, with that and getting plays off and, and sort of that whole deal and when the clock stops when a guy steps out of bounds if they run a couple of seconds off they're pretty good about getting it back in the nba and in college basketball hey put two seconds back on the clock and they do it at times in the nfl too but it's not perfect the one thing that you shouldn't screw up is the clock and i'm going to see how major league baseball handles that with this pitch clock that they've been so adamant about putting in all right i'm gonna stick a buzzer on us and a pitch clock on us and get the hell out of here but i do hope and pray that by Monday or Thursday of next week, and if it happens on Tuesday and Wednesday, we might jump in with like a few-minute emergency pod on the Texans coaching hire. But I, I'm going to predict we're going to know something by Thursday. Uh, Sean, let's let's do it again on Monday. But I, I got a feeling we're going to find out something here really soon. That'd be cool. I'll, I'll, I'll ride with you. Uh, I'll, I won't go Thursday, but I'll go uh, like Friday news dump, right? <laughs> Friday news dump next week? <laughs> yeah. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right, man. You're listening to Houston Sports Talk. Hey, you can support the show by subscribing on YouTube and commenting on the videos. Listen to Houston Sports Talk on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, and Google. Don't forget to tell a friend and share our show on social media. Spread the word, everybody. Thanks for listening.